0: This morning we're going to be uh, focusing our thoughts in Genesis chapter 5, so if you'd like to turn to that with me now, um, it's page 5 on my in my Bible, I'm not sure what it is on your pew Bibles, but it'll be fairly near the start, I can guarantee you that. So Genesis uh, chapter 5, um, it's quite a long section and I'm actually going to lengthen it slightly because I'm going to lead into it from the end of Genesis chapter 4. Um, so we're actually going to read from Genesis 4, verse 17, and right through chapter 5. So I'm just warning you now, uh, stick with us. Um, But we remember in all of this that this is God's word. Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujahel, and Mahujahel fathered Methushahel, and Methushahel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh for 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived for 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan for 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived for 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived for 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared for 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. We'll end there at verse 31 of Genesis chapter 5, and we give thanks to God for his word. As we turn to God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this is your enduring word that is still true today. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to understand what it is you want to say to us, and may we hear your voice speaking may you do our souls good for Jesus sake we pray amen yesterday I was reading an interview in a paper with someone whose 15 year old daughter had been killed in an accident a few years ago it seems that he had come to terms with her death by finding her in nature After his daughter's death, birds kept flying into their home and getting trapped and one of his other children suggested that the birds were a sign from his dead sister. Even though he admits that this sounds a bit implausible, he says he found the idea strangely consoling. What that interview captured was something which I think is probably in all of us and that is that We don't want to think that once life in this world is over, that's it. People who don't believe in God will still talk about dead relatives being up there, looking down on us, raising a glass, having a party, whatever it is, because we don't want to believe that once this life ends, there is nothing more. And yet, what basis do people have? for believing that there is something beyond life in this world. As Christians, we really do have a basis for believing that this life is not all that there is. And our hope goes right back to the passage that we're looking at this morning. I'm guessing that as we read this passage together, you're probably thinking to yourself, strange one to pick as a visiting preacher with most of the Bible available to you. Well, I'm guessing you haven't heard a sermon on Genesis 5 recently, so in that sense it's probably quite a safe one to pick. Um, But often it's good for us to have to stop and think when we read the Bible. Sometimes you can read a passage and it doesn't take us long to find something that speaks to us in some way, by way of encouragement or challenge or comfort. But there are other passages, and this may well be one of them, where We read it and we think to ourselves, what's that all about? How is it supposed to matter what age anyone was when they had children or even how long they lived? How is this relevant to my life and should I even look for significance in it? Well, as Christians we believe that none of the Bible is there by accident and that all of it is profitable. But sometimes we have to work that little bit harder to see that and that's no bad thing. If we could understand everything straight off, I could argue, well then we wouldn't need ministers, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. If we could understand everything straight off, then there is a danger that we just become a bit bored with the Bible. And we've been in danger of thinking that we'd reached a point where we'd nothing new to learn. If God is as great and as awesome as we believe him to be, then surely everything shouldn't make sense just straight away as we read his word, because if it did, then we would be God. But at the same time, we need to remember that God hasn't given us his word to be deliberately obscure and impossible to understand. And I hope that looking at Genesis 5 this morning will help us see that there are at least one or two things that are actually quite clear from the text once we look at it more closely. Now we can't read this or indeed any passage of the Bible in isolation. It's important to look at what surrounds it in order to help us see what particular purpose there may be in having these verses in our Bibles. There is however a sense in which we're moving into a new section in the book of Genesis as we start chapter 5. Because it starts with a form of words that comes up several times throughout the book. I think it's 10 times in the whole book of Genesis. You'll see it there in verse 1 of Genesis 5 where it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And just back a page in Genesis 2 verse 4, there it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this phrase, these are the generations, keeps cropping up in Genesis and splits the book up into different sections. So there's a sense as we come to chapter 5 that we're moving into a new phase in history. And the new thing about this section is that we're dealing with those who are descended from Adam through his son, Seth. The end of Genesis chapter 4 tells us all about Adam's son, Cain, and his descendants. In some ways, there's some positive things in what's said, because we see something of the progress of civilization and culture. Uh, There's Jabal, who seemed to know about uh, looking after animals. Uh, Jubal, who was musical, and Chubal Cain, who was a metal worker. It's in some respects the start of technological and cultural progress but at the same time in Genesis 4 we read of Lamech who was even more brutal than Cain. He killed a young man because he hit him. We don't even know if it was intentional or accidental but Lamech didn't seem to care about that. He wanted vengeance. So while on the one hand we have progress At the same time, we have a descent into an even more sinful behaviour. And the only real note of hope is sounded at the end of Genesis 4, following the birth of Adam's grandson, Enosh. But he's not a descendant of Cain. Enosh is the son of Adam's other son, Seth. And Genesis 4 ends by telling us, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So while Cain and his descendants are becoming more and more self-sufficient and going further away from God, Seth and his descendants seem to recognize their need of God's help and are calling out to him for that. So then what we have as we move into Genesis 5 is an alternative to what was happening with Cain and his descendants. We have a different line of people also descended from Adam but not exactly like Cain and his descendants. And yet, before we get too carried away with how different this all is, I want us to notice that one thing isn't different. It's not something we see as clearly in Genesis 4 as we do in Genesis 5. In Genesis 4, as all the descendants of Cain are listed, it's implied they don't live forever. But you probably noticed in the list in Genesis 5, it keeps saying each person lived for so many years And then he died. And that's the first big thing I'd like us to remember from Genesis 5. It's something that marks out this genealogy from the others in the Bible. And it can be summed up in the phrase, the judgment of God is seen in the reality of death. That's the first thing I'd like us to remember from the three things I want to leave with you this morning. The judgment of God is seen in the reality of death. Other genealogies don't go on about people dying. But here we read, and he died, time after time. Because no matter how long these people lived, and some of them appear to have lived rather a long time, but no matter how long they lived, they eventually died. And the fact that they died is evidence of the judgment of God. What do I mean by that? Well, you will remember that God told Adam that if he ate the fruit from one particular tree in the garden of Eden, he would die. Now, as we know, the serpent managed to deceive Adam and Eve into thinking that that wouldn't happen. And in fact, as soon as Adam ate the fruit, nothing did happen. He wasn't struck dead on the spot. But Genesis 5 verse 5 tells us that Adam did eventually die. God's word of judgment came true. And it kept coming true because Adam's descendants were born with his sinful nature and they lived up to that as they lived out their lives. They didn't love and obey God fully and perfectly. In fact they were incapable of doing that and so they ultimately died. And right here almost at the very beginning of the Bible we're faced with the stark reality that God's judgment on sin is shown by the fact that we all die. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that If, for instance, someone dies young, that's because they've been more sinful than someone who lives to a hundred. Nor am I saying that the sickness that often leads to death is necessarily the result of a, a direct result of a particular sin. All I'm saying is that because humanity as a whole is sinful, we all eventually die. God cannot allow sinful people to go on living forever. It's interesting to note that in the list of people in Genesis 5, nothing's said about most of them other than the fact that they lived for a certain number of years, then had a son, then lived for a certain number of years after that, and had other sons and daughters, and then they died. We're not told what they did, what they achieved, what they owned, whether they were particularly good or particularly bad. And in fact, whether these numbers of years are exact or not, people will argue over that, but even if they are, no one quite managed to live to the magic thousand years. Methuselah is the one who came closest, but he only made it to 969. And let's not forget what Psalm 90 verse 4 says about how God views time. There we're told that a thousand years are like a day to God. So even those who lived longest didn't live all that long in God's eyes. So these people lived and then they died. And that's really all Genesis 5 has to say about them. That's quite a sobering thought because it's a pattern that's repeating, been repeating itself over the centuries of history ever since. People have lived and then they've died. Now, the older you get, the harder it is to avoid the reality of death. And yet, often I think we're quite good at. Avoiding the fact that death will come to each of us. As a culture, we focus very little on death. Instead, we're encouraged to stay as healthy as we can and do our best to look as young as we can, almost as if we can defy the inevitability of death. But whether we try to ignore death or not, it still remains as the ultimate statistic. One in one dies. And Genesis 5 reminds us of that. In some ways, then, the picture that's painted by this genealogy is a bleak one. People lived, but then they died. And that's something that hasn't changed. And every death is evidence of God's judgment for human rebellion against him. Every death is a reminder that we are out of sync with God. And we cannot, in our current state, live forever. But there's something else which I think we can learn from this genealogy. And that is that the grace of God is seen in giving life. The second thing to note from this is that the grace of God is seen in giving life. You see, while it's true that people die, at the same time we could argue that this genealogy is all about the fact that human life goes on. Individual human beings may die, but this genealogy proves that human life didn't die out. The fact that we're here this morning also proves that. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. He wanted the world to be filled with people. And that was what was going on as these generations followed on from Adam. Human life was continuing and the human race was expanding. But it was all down to the grace of God. He could have wiped out humanity after Adam sinned. But graciously, he didn't. In fact, as I've already said, all of these people in Genesis 5 seem to have lived for a very long time. Now you'll find people who want to argue about whether these are actual years or not, although I'm not sure if we need to be too horrified by the idea that they might be. Let's remember that the human gene pool wasn't so corrupted in those early days, and so it may be possible that people did live for longer than they do now. And certainly if that was the case, then here again we see some evidence of God's grace in, not, in allowing human life to continue, and in fact to continue for quite a long time in certain instances. It's important that we don't forget that human life is a gift from God. It's not our right. We can't actually just will life into being, and any couple who have struggled to conceive a child will confirm to you that each new life that comes into this world is a gift of God. The grace of God is still seen today in the fact that our race hasn't died out but let's not forget that this is not down to anything great about us but it's thanks to God and yet despite this slightly more positive note We see the grace of God in the life that continues. The fact obviously remains that individuals die. And we can't get away from that in this chapter. So is the overall picture a bleak one? Well, I think there's at least one note of hope here. And we find it where the writer departs from his standard pattern. I hope you notice that in verse 21. Where we see that the hope of eternal life is seen in Enoch that's the third thing that we want to take from this passage the hope of eternal life is seen in Enoch if you look at verse 21 for a moment you'll see it starts off with the same pattern telling us that Enoch when Enoch lived for 65 years he fathered Methuselah but then the pattern changes because it goes on to say Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years And then we're back into the pattern where it says, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. But then instead of saying, and he died, we read, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's a very interesting point of contrast here between what we're told about Cain and his descendants in chapter 4. Because if you go for seven generations along the line of Cain, You come to Lamech, who we have seen showed how far Cain's descendants had strayed from God's ways. Whereas seven generations along the line of Seth brings you to Enoch. And here we have someone who is as close to God as it is possible to get. You probably know that Enoch is one of only two people we read of in the Bible who didn't die, the other one being Elijah. But unlike Elijah, who was in many ways a great hero of the faith, someone who did amazing things in God's strength and powerfully spoke God's word to a nation that was going away from him, Enoch, in contrast, isn't painted as being or doeth doing anything all that special. But the one thing that he did was that he walked with God. And that phrase, he walked with God, is a bit different from what we read about some other great men in the Bible, because often we read about them walking before God. Contains the idea that they knew God was watching them, but it doesn't have the idea of intimacy which walking with God conveys. And there's something even more remarkable about it if you think back to what happened in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God. There we read about God walking in the garden, But where are Adam and Eve? They're certainly not walking with God. In fact, they're hiding from him. So this is a complete turnaround. Here we have someone who walks with God and because of his closeness to God, he doesn't die like everyone else, but he simply stops existing in this world. Presumably he keeps on walking with God and in a sense he just walks on into the nearer presence of God. So Enoch gives us a hint that there is an existence beyond this world which involves walking with God. What does that really mean? What does it mean for us? How does walking with God connect with life now? Are we just supposed to drift through this life thinking warm thoughts about God? Not really having to deal with the boring and mundane and stressful aspects of life? Well the New Testament doesn't talk of specific individuals walking with God but the language of walking is used a lot and it's all to do with how we live our lives. The Apostle John is helpful in spelling out a bit more about this in his second letter because in 2 John verse 6 talking about what true love is all about he says and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. Walking with God involves obeying what his word tells us So it does connect with how we live every day. It involves loving people who are not very nice to us sometimes. It involves not losing our temper even when provoked. It involves being truthful. It involves being content and not complaining when things don't go exactly the way we want. Because those are part of living in obedience to God's commands. Those are things that we know bring pleasure to God. Now, of course, we need to be clear that it's not that we try hard to be as good as we can ourselves. We have to realise that we can never keep God's commandments in our own strength. But when we confess our sins to him and accept the forgiveness that is possible because of Jesus' death, then we can start to walk with God. We can come into that relationship with him, which he wants to continue forever. And we will continue in that relationship as we seek to live in line with how God has revealed he wants us to live. Enoch, I think, is a very good example to us of what eternal life is all about. Eternal life is not something that we will experience after we die. It's something that we start to experience now. The Apostle John elsewhere describes eternal life as knowing God. As we get to know God, as we begin to walk with him and live in obedience to his commands, we're starting a relationship that will simply continue and deepen after life in this world has come to an end. And so for us, if we're Christians, death won't be the ultimate judgment of God because it simply leads into a more perfect experience of God. Barring the return of Christ, we will all die. And we can't just pretend that everything will somehow magically be okay. God tells us that judgment is real. And we experience something of that in the fact of death. But it points to a greater reality to come when we will have to give an account for how we have treated God in this life. If we've been ignoring him in this world, if we've been living the way it suits us to live, not giving very much thought to God and his ways, if we've not spent time in his word or with his people, then why would we want to live with him forever? But if our desire is to know God, to be able to appreciate his goodness more, if we want to bring pleasure to him by living lives that are consistent with what he tells us in his words, Not necessarily lives that are big and significant in this world's terms. We don't know anything about what really happened with these people in Genesis 5. But if we want to live lives that are pleasing to God, then surely going into the nearer presence of God once this life is over is a wonderful prospect. And in fact, is the natural next step. But if we're honest, while the life of Enoch... Holds out the hope of eternal life and we're glad of that it surely comes as a challenge to us does it not god doesn't just want us to pray a prayer and sign up for a heavenly insurance policy he wants us to walk with him now and we can only do that as we spend time focusing on him and living in the light of his words it's very easy to invest most of our effort and energies into things which will be of no consequence once this life is over. If someone looked at how you've spent this past week, how you've spent your time, how you spent your money, what your private thoughts have been, how you've behaved in the privacy of your own home, would they say that you were someone who was clearly walking with God. I imagine that most of us wouldn't be making too many great claims in that regard. And yet, I don't think that Enoch here is given to us as an unattainable ideal. Instead, he's meant to be an encouragement to us that it is possible to walk with God. It's possible because of Jesus and what he has done for us in dealing with the judgment of God, the judgment of death that he dealt with at the cross, it's possible that as we come to him in faith, confessing our sins and trusting in him, then we can start to know God. And we can start to have something at least of the desire to obey him, to bring honour to him in the way that we live our lives. If we're doing that, more and more, if we're putting God at the centre of our lives, at the centre of our family's life, then surely it will be our ultimate joy to be with him forever. So I want to finish by challenging us to think about whether the life that we're living is a life that will end in judgment and death, separation from God because it doesn't need to be. This world is looking for something beyond some hope but looking in all the wrong places when we as Christians have the answer. Our hope is in Jesus and if we're trusting in him then we have hope, not just for this life, but for the life to come. And I hope that is true of each of us this morning, that we haven't been listening to the lies of the world around us that tells us that we should focus our thoughts and energies on the here and now and everything about instant gratification, but instead that we are trusting in the truth of God's words and have submitted our lives to Jesus. And if you haven't done that, can I urge you to do that today? But I trust that for most of us, that is the case, that we actually are trying to live for him, however imperfectly we are doing that. And for us, we have the confidence and the assurance that as we go into this next week, however exciting or however boring, however challenging it might be, if we are walking with God and truly seeking to do that, then we have the hope that not only will we walk with him tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, but we will do that forever. Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, so often our focus is so bound on this life, and it's hard for it not to be, because this is where we live. This is the reality that we know. But though we pray that you would help us to shift our gaze more and more to you, we confess that we Don't do that enough. Our desire is not for you in the way that it should be. But we thank you that your word doesn't come just to beat us up, but actually to encourage us, to assure us that there is something precious and beautiful and wonderful about walking with you. May that be our desire this week. Help us to put behind what we've done before, maybe a week that's not been characterised by walking with you, but looking to you, as the one who can empower us more and more to live to your praise and your honour and glory. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.